a spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello, and welcome to the 109th episode of Curiosityness. I am Travis DeRose, the host, and this episode we're talking about Howard Johnson, the man Howard Johnson, and the restaurant and hotel Howard Johnson's. So I have on uh, Anthony Samarco. He is the author of a book called A History of Howard Johnson's, How a Massachusetts Soda Fountain Began an American Icon. So uh, I'm a bit young to uh, remember the Howard Johnson's restaurants, but definitely recognize the Howard Johnson's name, the hotels, motel line. Uh, So it's kind of... uh, it, it was kind of fun to stumble into the story. Didn't super know the history of Howard Johnson's and how much of an icon it was and how important it was to the traveling, the travelers of America, but good God, it's a fun story. It's really cool. So uh, glad I found Anthony. Thank you to Anthony for coming on and sharing this story. Uh, yeah, we just, we dive into the story of who Howard Johnson was as a guy, how he got started with his restaurants and his 28 flavors and his orange roofs on those Howard Johnson's restaurants. Um, it's just fun. I think if you, especially if you know and remember Howard Johnson's, you're going to really love this episode. But if you're like me and don't know what the hell Howard Johnson's restaurant is like, you've never stepped foot in one. I think you're still going to enjoy this episode because, uh, it's some new history that you may not have been exposed to. So uh, let's get to the episode. I'll let Anthony dive into it and share this whole story. Oh, and unfortunately, there might be a little bit of an echo on this episode. Uh, we just kind of had a little bit of echo feedback in the in the recording with um, Anthony, but uh, I did my best to try to get rid of it. So it shouldn't be too bad, but uh, sorry about that if you hear that. Here is episode 109 right now. Anthony, how you doing, man? Good to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's great to meet you. Yeah, great to meet you too. Uh, excited to talk about Howard Johnson's today because I mean, for me, um, the the name is you know is familiar, of course, but for me, it's the uh, the hotel. You know, I, exactly. I think yeah, right. for, I, I kind of missed out on the the restaurant. I never got to visit a, a Howard Johnson's or anything like that, but. The name still is iconic, and I, you know, I brought it up to. I was telling my family that I was going to do a talk to a Howard Johnson's historian here, and they're like, "Oh, Hojo's," you know. They were, they loved it, you know. They, they right away it clicks with them. But I feel like I kind of missed that. So, but I'm so curious on the story of how this, how this became so iconic. Well, it's ironic you say that it's iconic. It's something that people under the age of fifty have only heard the name. But people over the age of 50 that remember Howard Johnson's really thought of it not just as an orange-roofed empire, but it was something that stretched from Maine to Florida, from the East Coast to the West Coast. So I felt in some ways when I was researching this book, I knew it well. And it was a concept that not only was Howard Johnson's born in Dorchester, Massachusetts, where I was born, but he had actually lived almost his entire life within the Boston area. So he was somebody who parlayed hard work, drive, and determination into something that wasn't just 28 flavors of ice cream, but it was actually home cooking that something that really took new heights and provided a very sensible price meal, whether it was breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Interesting. So yeah, so yeah, help me kind of uh, explain to me or help me understand the uh, why Howard Johnson's became so 
well known and so widespread. You know, you mentioned how it's like home cooking and good prices. Yeah, was that kind of was that it? Was that the basis of it, or is there more to it? Well, there's more to it. When he started in 1925, he took a small loan from not only his widowed mother but also Dr. George Dalton, who was an internist at Quincy City Hospital. And what he did was to purchase a corner store in Wollaston, which is a neighborhood of Quincy. And this was a corner store adjacent to a railroad depot, so people commuted to Boston. So not only did he sell cigarettes and cigars and newspapers and magazines, but he had a soda fountain. And he basically had three forms of ice cream, vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. But the whole concept was Howard Johnson was really a far thinker. He was somebody who not only could actually think about the present, but he also thought of what he could possibly do in the future. And the ice cream, which was perfectly fine, was not homemade. So he began in some ways to not only produce a fine ice cream, initially through his mother's recipe and later, which he purchased for $300, which in 1926 was a tremendous sum of money, from a man by the name of William Halbauer, who had an ice cream stand in the Hunt, Massachusetts. But he began to experiment with flavors. And though he became well-known as the man who provided 28 flavors, something for every palate, he might have 35 on the menu at any given time. So it seemed in some ways, not only was he providing high-quality premium ice cream, when the word premium probably didn't even come into an equation. But he was also beginning in some ways to offer fine food. And ironically, Howard Johnson's didn't just do baked macaroni and cheese and chicken croquet, um, but he also began in some of his more urban settings to provide filet mignon, short ribs, as well as even lobster tails. So he really did the gamut of not only food and ice cream, but he also in some ways trained all of his staff. And the idea here was that it wasn't just his staff, but as early as 1935, he began to franchise his restaurants. Mm, Right. And the franchise concept, of which he's called the father of the franchise industry, was something that not only created a cash flow because it could cost anywhere from three to four thousand dollars at the height of the depression, but he was also somebody who would oversee it not only with a team of architects under his employ, but also purchasing land at very strategic locations, always at an intersection. But it was also something that he would then, through a commissary, sell the food to the franchisee. And in that way, not only could he standardize the food production, but he could also, in that instance, control the name. Because what they were doing, they were they were actually leasing the name of Howard Johnson's. And with his name there, one wanted to be sure that the, say, fried clams that one got in Bangor, Maine, were the same fried clams that you got in Miami, Florida. So through that franchise industry, he not only controlled quality control, but he also in some ways controlled the growth. And believe me, the growth between 1925 and 1975 was tremendous. Right. 
so that okay so let's uh so it started as kind of an ice cream stand um did yes i mean and so the kind of the thing that he he started just selling kind of generic ice cream i guess but he wanted to improve on the quality and make that better so he made it homemade and so what is i've i've heard the term you know homemade it's it's kind of tossed around like a marketing term now i feel like and it's just you know whatever but did that what does that actually mean did it mean like he was making the ice cream in his store there yes the funny thing was when he did get the recipe from william halbauer he purchased French freezers, and these French freezers would be, in some ways, the latest contraption to actually make ice cream. Previous to that time, you'd have to crank an ice cream freezer. But in this instance, what he began to do was to look at it and begin not only to see the ice cream with various flavors, but also the texture of the ice cream. Now, many times, we will get ice cream that has shards of ice in it, or it's a little bit grainy. And that's fine, but that's a lower quantity of cream. And in this instance, what Howard Johnson did was to take the idea that premium ice cream would have a standard of about 11 to 14% fat count. But what he decided to do is that if the ice cream that was being served was as good as Halbauer's, he raised it to 21% fat count. So not only was it the most rich and creamy ice cream, devoid of any ice shards, but it was also the best that was available on the market. And he sold them for a nickel a cone. But he didn't just do ice cream. He even had ice cream scoops that were designed specially for him. And they were conical, and they had a cut top so that the piece itself would actually, of ice cream, would not only be conically shaped, but there would be a neck And it was double the size of anyone else's ice cream cone. Ah. So at a Nicola cone, at the height of the summer, 28 different flavors, he was selling thousands of ice cream cones on a daily basis. And throughout the 1920s and 1930s, it wasn't just at his corner store in Wollaston, um, a part of Quincy, Massachusetts, but he was also renting stands at Nantasket Beach, at Wollaston Beach, and we saw even one at Revere Beach. So at a Nicola Cone, he was in some ways amassing a fortune. (laughs) And it was also something that word of mouth, people began to realize that Howard Johnson's ice cream was not just delicious, but there was really a palate flavor for everyone. And I think it was something that just took off with alacrity. Yeah. Oh, it's so cool. He so he just he made great ice cream. He made a bunch of flavors. It was a good value. He got a lot of it and for a good price. And then so he started with these corner stores. Where did the name where did he decide was it called Howard Johnson's at that time or when did he decide to just name his restaurant his his own full name? It was in 1925 when he started. And the funny thing was, it was on every single store. So whether it was um, a sign, such as a hand-painted sign that was actually on his store in Wollaston, or in later life, it would actually be on these neon signs, usually 25 feet in height, that had simple Simon on the Pyman at the very top, which was the logo since 1935, It could actually be illuminated in the evening, but during the day, how could you miss it with an orange roof and turquoise blue shutters? So Howard Johnson was somebody who 
must have had a knack for business because he was probably one of the greatest marketeers of the 1920s and 30s. Not only to get his name out there, but he was also beginning to create a sense that people wondered who was Howard Johnson. And it was even the fact that people that wrote for such magazines as Fortune magazine would do an article on him in 1939, and it started, who is Howard Johnson? Everyone knew the sign because it began to have not just restaurants, but ice cream stands up and down the eastern seacoast. But people began to wonder in some ways, was there a man behind this or was it simply a name? And people began to realize in some ways that this man, and he even said this in his uh, short autobiography, that he worked 18 hours a day, seven days a week. So one began to realize in some ways that this was a man, maybe he was driven, but he was also somebody who had seen failure. His father had failed in a cigar business and in 1921 went into debt to the tune of $30,000. Howard Johnson had left school in the eighth grade to actually assist his father and, of course, would actually become a soldier during World War I. But upon his return, he himself actually assisted his father until the father died and was able to repay the father's debt by the period of 1929. So I think sometimes it wasn't just Howard Johnson, who was this man, but it was Howard Johnson, a man who was honorable to honor his father's debt, but also to grow a business with a widowed mother and two unmarried sisters living at home. And he was able in some ways to become a great success. So I think many people realize the name is more than just the restaurant. It truly is a man who is probably one of the greatest success stories in the food industry of 20th century America. Yeah, for sure. I think everyone can agree with that. Um, and so how does, because it seems, I think you mentioned too, it's his first ice cream stand was kind of by a train station. So does he kind of uh, grasp the idea quickly that uh, he wants to provide products or meals or, or lodging eventually even to, to travelers, to people on trains or on a road trip or something? Well, eventually that did happen. But at the place in Wollaston, he was somebody who actually had not just ice cream, and ice cream sundaes and fraps. He also served sandwiches, but eventually there was a little area where people could sit down. Maybe the train wasn't for a half hour or an hour. But by the period of the 1930s, Howard Johnson was somebody who was catering to the traveling public. During that period of time, the United States was building many toll roads throughout the United States. So when we think of the Massachusetts Turnpike, the New Jersey Turnpike, the New York Thruway, the Pennsylvania Turnpike, these were places that would usually have a gasoline station and a comfort station, but it also tried to solicit people to bid to have a restaurant. So Howard Johnson won the concession on all of these roads. And you had to realize the ascendancy of the automobile was a big deal in the 1930s and 40s. It was in that period that now middle-class America could not only afford an automobile, but now they could travel, whether it was simply to visit family or to take a vacation. And Howard Johnson 
side by side with a gasoline station would see families gassing their automobile and then, of course, going to Howard Johnson's because it was always remarkable, clean facilities. But it was also the same food that they may have had in Wollaston. So whether one was in Ohio or New Jersey or New York or Pennsylvania, what he was doing was standardizing not just his food, but it was also the fact that he was becoming a reliable purveyor of not just food, but comfort. And I think people, whether it was seniors or adults or young adults or children, all had something that they enjoyed at Howard Johnson's, and it seemed to be the same every time they went back. Yeah, that's um, something that I'll experience when we travel. You know, I want to try the new the places and try the local food and everything, but sometimes I'm like, you know, I just need like a Big Mac or something. I just want like something <laughs> familiar, right? I know, I know. So it's like, so was was at the time, you know, having Howard Johnson's be able to do this and kind of standardize everything where you you knew that it was going to be comfortable and it, the food was going to be similar everywhere you went. Was that kind of revolutionary at the time Was or were other people doing that? Well, there were people doing similar things, but not to the extent of Howard Johnson. He did seem to be an innovator. And one of the things was he worked with a woman by the name of Virginia Church. She was a dietitian, and she was living in Boston while her husband was attending the Harvard Medical School. During that time, she wanted a job, and she was hired by Howard Johnson. Now, as a dietitian, what she did was to work with him to create very palatable but also um, foods and entrees that were a little bit more nutritious, not just fat. I always wondered what she must have thought about the 21% butterfat count of the ice cream. But she would create menus, and some of them, as you say, were quite unusual. I mean, her shrimp curry and her chicken curry was something that we don't really think of our grandparents enjoying a curry with rice. But it was something that was known in the 19th century in Boston, especially with our connection to the China trade and, of course, with trade with India. Curry was something that was not really spicy and pungent. It was exotic. And though we think maybe of a Big Mac as being something that's a comfort food, so too wasn't curry. So they were producing things such as macaroni and cheese. Well, what Boston family would have eaten macaroni before 1900? only of Italian descent. During this period, combining it with cheddar cheese, it became a mainstay. So he was also offering the public something that was not just delicious, it was quite hearty, but he was also offering businessmen's lunches and businessmen's dinners. So the traveling public also included salespeople. And in that instance, for 50 cents, one could usually have either a cup of soup or a small glass of juice, an entree, and coffee and dessert, which was revolutionary for 50 cents. But in a lot of ways, what he was doing was offering to the public good food at good prices. He always said it was sensible, but it's a C as a a cent sign, sensible prices. And what he was really trying to do was to cater to the middle-class America. And it's well known that even wealthy Americans, as well as working Americans, all patronized Howard Johnson's. 
So it was something that whether one was traveling or staying in a certain city or town, it seemed to be a Howard Johnson's at every corner on, on, on every road. So was that was his ability to expand like that, or there's so many Howard Johnsons, was that because of his, uh, basically because of the franchising and his, you know, inventiveness in, in doing that? Yes, very much so. Creating a franchise was something that not only produced a ready cash flow, but it was also the fact that once the franchise had been legally accepted, they then had to purchase all of their food and ice cream from Howard Johnson's um, commissaries. Now, one of the things is he lived in the town of Milton, Massachusetts. We lived right around the corner from where his house was. It was a lovely house on Brush Hill Road, 14 acres. It was very simple, you know, a eight-bedroomed house, four-car garage, tennis courts, things of that sort. But what he did was really to buy it as a business expense. His children boarded at school. And we used the house for entertaining. And according to the story was, he would set up a marquee on the 1st of May every year. And the marquee could actually be so large that 400 people could be entertained. And what he did was to invite prospective franchisees along with their husbands or wives, and they would arrive. And of course, this was a very rural area, um, very wealthy rural area. People would park on the road and walk to the house, and there they were greeted by Howard Johnson to bring them into the marquee where there would be bars at each of the four corners. Open bar, and he called them his Frankfurter roasts. And he would serve not hot dogs, but his specially made Frankfurters on a grilled toasted bun that was something that was provided through his commissary. You could drink as much, well, you could eat as much Frankfurters as you wanted. And the idea was that many people did purchase them. I would say that on every aspect of these uh, Frankfurter roasts, it would be at least three to four people that would actually sign contracts. And you're talking three to $4,000, which was just under the cost of a very nice middle-class home. So a two-family house might be three to $4,000. A one-family might be five, maybe $6,000. But at this time, he was getting people who wanted to invest because they knew how delicious the food was. They knew that the ice cream was premium, and they knew that people patronized these restaurants. Well, one of the things was in 1935, when he started the franchise, what he had was one of his closest friends speak with his father. And this family lived in Orleans on Cape Cod. And we realized in some ways that these people themselves, who had been fairly well-to-do, were hard hit by the Great Depression. But the idea here was that he wanted to start a restaurant and if people know Cape Cod, Orleans has the junction of Route 6A and Route 28. And coming into Orleans, it's the first thing you see. So he actually leased the land. And what he did at that point was to place a restaurant as a franchise through this family. And in that instance, within two years, the man was actually grossing between seventeen and $20,000 a year. 
So he paid off a debt of over $40,000, but he was able in nine months to make a very good living for himself. So he was not just a dear friend of Howard Johnson, but he was also a man who bought a franchise. And these would be built throughout the Boston area. So among the earliest in the Boston area were Dorchester and Quincy and Dedham, Cambridge. And they had a loyal following because in some ways a family of not only a mother and a father and children could dine at a very reasonable price. But there was also the fact that if you got a meal, it was a three-course meal always ending usually with a variety of desserts, but ice cream was always offered. Mm -hmm. So how was there something special or how was he able to offer, you know, such good quality food for good, such great prices? Buying in bulk. (laughs) And not only did he buy in bulk, but what he did was he would hire many of the people to work in his commissaries. Now, these commissaries were huge. The, The initial one was in Wollaston. And then he later had one in Brockton. And then he also had one in New York, in Queens. And during that period of time, hundreds of people would work for him. So not only were they preparing things such as clam chowder, they were roasting turkeys. They were preparing hand-dipped chocolate bonbons. They were creating lollipops, all of which were sold at the uh, cash register, But they were also, in some ways, creating all of the desserts that were then served. So he was well known for his coconut cake and pound cake and various things. But you had to realize the reason he had so many people doing this was simply for the fact that the franchise had to purchase from him. Even if Aunt Maud made the best chocolate fudge cake imaginable and everyone loved it, Aunt Maud's cake couldn't be served at the franchise. He had to have a standardization. And what he did was often to increase different types of foods that would actually be served. But you had to realize he had some pretty heavy hitters. Now, during the 1960s, Howard Johnson was a multimillionaire at this point, a man who had started off in debt. But he hired a man by the name of Jacques Pepin, to actually work at his commissary in Queens, New York. Now, Jacques Pepin is a very well-known French chef today. He even cooked with Julia Child. So let me touch his shoulder. He is a success. But what's happened is he worked for him for 10 years. And in that instance would make gallons and gallons of clam chowder. So One would think, if I'm making a regular clam chowder for six people, how do I multiply it for a 100 in the same cauldron and get the same consistency as a creamy, rich clam chowder and do it in a success? But it was also said that Jacques Pepin, in his wonderful autobiography, would roast a 100 turkeys daily. And he didn't just roast the turkeys, he boned them. So you had pieces of turkey that then would then be prepared and flash frozen. Because by the 1960s, Howard Johnson was not just preparing fresh food. Now they were preparing food that was intended to be flash frozen. And what they were doing was an experimentation because in the 1960s, it wasn't always a success. Not all foods could be properly frozen and remain consistent in its quality and texture once it was defrosted. But in that instance, 
he was doing not only Yeoman's work, but Jacques Pepin worked with him side by side along with many others that would actually begin to produce this food that people really did enjoy. So the 1960s and early 1970s were a great innovation. But Howard Johnson's restaurants during that period of time were so well attended and so patronized that many people would realize every restaurant had at least 100 parking spaces. So one could walk, of course, if it was within walking distance. But with the ascendancy of the automobile after World War II, which meant that most families had one automobile, it was something that truly did cater to not just the local public, but the traveling public. Yeah. So, so Anthony, can you just take me, like, take me back in time and help me picture what it's, let's say I'm, you know, I'm on a road trip traveling down the highway and am I, what am I going to see? Am I going to see some billboards, some signs for Howard Johnson's? What, what's the restaurant going to look like? What's my experience like inside? Just, can you, can you take me through that? Well, it's ironic you say about billboards, Howard Johnson's marketing budget must have been in the millions, because it seemed like on every major road, as I mentioned earlier, with these turnpike roads, there'd be a sign, and it would say, Howard Johnson's six miles. So today, when we're looking on the highway and we see service station 22 miles away, do we need to stop? That's the first thing I say in our automobile. But the idea was, why not stop? Even if one only had a half a tank of gas, let's stop and get gas and maybe ice cream. Or if we're hungry, why don't we stop and have dinner? During this period of time, not just did these billboards patronize in some ways the American public. I really do feel many people looked at it as something that, you know, well, it's always around. You see these advertisements. Is it really that good? But when people did go to Howard Johnson's, it was something that everything was consistent in the quality, production, as well as presentation, always with green parsley, which I remember. (laughs) And many people looked at it as something that, yes, it may have been patronizing, but he won over people consistently. And during that period, many people realized that once they had arrived, they may gas up They may actually use the facilities, but then they could actually have something that was enjoyment. As early as the 1950s, though, Howard Johnson began to realize that his restaurants had become a mainstay in the United States. Everyone knew them. Everyone used them. And the idea was many people who were traveling didn't necessarily have consistently good hotels or motels to stay in. Mm -hmm. And in 1952, because many Bostonians were snowbirds, they would drive to Florida, he decided to open the first motel adjacent to his restaurant in Savannah, Georgia. Now, Savannah is a very warm climate. So in 1952, when he created his motel, not only did it have an orange roof, but it also had telephone service and a pool. And many people said, my God, this is incredible. By the period of 1960, he had over 750 motels. And the motels were adjacent to his restaurant. So if one is traveling 10, 12 hours to get to a point and you have to stop, 
what better place to stop than Howard Johnson's, where not only you could have a dinner that was something that you probably craved, whether it was fried clams, maybe a lobster tail, or maybe it was macaroni and cheese, but now you were going to stay in a hotel or motel that was now just as standardized as this restaurant. So the rooms were all decorated the same. The quality of the sheets were the same. Everyone had a telephone that connected to an operator at the motel. There was a pool. And by the late 1960s, they were air conditioned. So what he was really doing was to create an empire. This orange-roofed empire, as I said, stretched from coast to coast. And it was something that offered for the American middle class something that was not only stable and didn't really change from one city to another, but it was also something that was reasonably priced and something that they could actually identify with. And the children, just with the word Howard Johnson, maybe they were like me, as a child, I would say, yes, and I hate to say it, all I ever had was an ice cream of vanilla ice cream with Jimmy's. <laughs> I never changed. <laughs> Man, well, it just, um, I love that story. It seems so, uh, I, I mean, it seems kind of like a natural evolution where you're, he has all these restaurants along the roadways. He realizes that, you know, the accommodations, the hotels aren't the best. People need stuff. So let's start getting some hotels in there. Um, but it makes me wonder, did he ever, did Howard Johnson ever try other ventures like, you know, uh, a convenience store, gas station, or, or did he have other things that he experimented with that maybe weren't as successful as the hotel or the restaurant? No, it was primarily restaurants and by 1952, the beginnings of the motel chain. And both of them were really quite successful. But, you know, Howard Johnson was somebody who, you know, as I said earlier, he worked 18 hours a day, seven days a week, but that didn't really negate the fact that he lived quite well. One of the things is he did keep a house in Milton, later a second house in Milton, and sold the first one. But he had a place at Gramercy Park in New York, later Fifth Avenue. He had a place in Edgartown, and he had a yacht. So he had one of the best art collections in the Boston area. He really lived well. But he seemed in some ways to have a multitude of wives. He had four marriages, um, two of which ended drastically, and the fourth one of which basically she survived him for 20 years. He was somebody in some ways that must have been driven. And I think in some ways there's no gray matter here. He was either black or white. Either you liked him or you disliked him. He was gregarious, forthright, he knew what he was offering, but it was also the fact that many of the franchisees who were eager to be accepted into that franchise family also knew what he could give them. So I think in that instance, many people looked at Howard Johnson as somebody who, as the father of the franchise industry, really changed America's perception of fast food restaurants. And yes, maybe Burger King mcdonald's kentucky fried chicken today are uh, the preponderant aspect of fast food but the three of them combined in 1965 could never compete with howard johnson so i think in that instance fast food was something that everyone seemed to think quick easy filling 
a little bit tasty. But here you were with Howard Johnson's, and it was something that one really dined, and it was something that was quite good. So many of the foods which I mentioned in my book, actually I have recipes of things of that sort. Uh, many people begin to realize in some ways that the food is something that, you know, we still get today, chicken pot pie and things like uh, chicken curry, as I mentioned earlier. But he also did things like chicken liver en brochet, and he also did chicken croquettes, a lot of things that appealed to the public that were very good. But I think in some ways his desserts were the things that were just incredible. He was known for his chocolate cake. He was known for his carrot cake. But his sour cream cake was something that was even more delicious than the coconut cake. It was a rich, creamy confection of not just sugar and cream and vanilla, but it was something that people actually looked forward to. So in a lot of ways, what Howard Johnson was doing was, yes, providing food to hungry Americans, but he was also using the marketing tools that he had created in the 1920s and 1930s by the 1950s in magazine articles. Magazines such as Look and Life and a variety of others would have full-page color advertisements. And these were things that would actually do things that would actually show a clamboree. And every type of clam that they served it would actually show ice cream with bumblebees with a spoon. They no longer were pollinating plants and flowers. They were actually taste testing ice cream cones that grew like flowers. And you saw also things such as beef. And you would have people actually advertising for Howard Johnson. And it made it into something that everyone of all walks of life knew Howard Johnson's. So I think in that way, his marketing, especially in magazines, which could be read on the East Coast or the West Coast, or even in Canada or Mexico, made people aware of not just Howard Johnson, but the magnitude of the foods that he served at his restaurants. Yeah. And talking about the marketing too, something that, you know, even me not really being around during this time and everything, but something that's been a holdover and that I even still recognize is kind of the the architecture of their restaurants and that that orange roof. Uh, where did, how did that, is there a story to how that came about and when that happened? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, Howard Johnson started in the 1925 period, but by the 1930s, he was looking at that franchise concept. And by 1935, of course, the first one was in Orleans, Massachusetts. Now, during this period of time, he was actually having a staff of architects that worked for him that would help work with the individual franchisee to design it for not only the lot of land, but in a colonial revival design. Now, during that period of time, you saw much of his restaurants changing from a colonial revival design to a little bit of a more modernistic design known as the NIMS design in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s. But they all had the same concept, a center door, the kitchen directly behind. On the right-hand side was where one sat at a counter on little stools, and on the left-hand side, a dining room. They didn't change, and they still had a orange roof and blue shutters. 
But during the period of the 1920s and 1930s, these individual architects began to realize in some ways that if they were going to design these buildings, they wanted it to be something that people would see. Now, during the day, unless one is colorblind, you're going to see an orange roof and you're going to see blue shutters. But in the evening, they began to erect neon signs. And the neon signs were important because the logo, Simple Simon of the Pieman, was usually in an orange tube that outlined the two figures. And then the marquee itself would actually have all of their specials. So if you're traveling by automobile, you couldn't miss the marquee. But the architects during this period of time were a major source of what basically was becoming a major roadside icon. And as an icon, it was something that Howard Johnson realized that he was creating something that people wanted to go to. During the 1960s, though, with a little bit of a modernization, especially because his son, Howard Brennan Johnson, was coming into the business, they decided to hire an architect from Atlanta, Georgia, by the name of Rudolf Nims. Nims, a very successful architect, modernized the Howard Johnson restaurant, and it became a place of plate glass windows, still with an orange roof, but it was something that was actually to be created as the prototype restaurant. After that point, every Howard Johnson's looked like a NIMS design with a hundred lot parking area for automobiles and the Rudolph NIMS design. It was something that really standardized the company and of course cut prices because they use the same design over and over. So the restaurants themselves which has started off as charming colonial revival places with a, um, a cupola that was illuminated from within, a weather vane of Simple Simon of the Pieman, charming banquets, walls that were actually uh, covered in naughty pine paneling. It was something that was charming, but it was a little expensive. By the 1960s, one had cut costs by standardizing the architectural design just like he had standardized the menu in the 1930s and 40s. So by doing that, what he was doing was reinvesting in the business, but also making it to something that one would more readily identify with than a multitude of colonial revival designs. There's a great aspect in my book. I have photographs that actually show the restaurants, especially in the 1940s and 1950s, and they're really quite lovely. But the whole idea is, after the 19, early 1960s, these restaurants and motels were almost cookie-cutter in design, and what they did was to make it readily identifiable, and whether you could read or write, you could actually recognize the orange roof. Yeah, Sure. Um, so I think the next kind of everyone's, you know, that's not super familiar with the story is their next question is, well, where is, are all the Howard Johnsons today? What's, what's happened to them? So is that kind of the, is that the next part of the story? Should we dive into that? Sure. Well, you know, it's funny when you say these things, because it's such a sad situation. Howard Johnson took over 40 years to build his business. Now, remember in 1925, he started in debt. A small amount of money from his mother and $2,000 from a family doctor. 
And the idea was by the 1959 period, when he stepped down as president and became chairman of the board, he was worth $750 million. Now, in 1959, that was a tremendous sum of money. Today, it would probably be the equivalent of about, oh, probably $8 billion. I mean, the idea was he was so wealthy that he not only had reinvested and created these franchises and lived quite well, by the way, but he was also somebody who in some ways had used his marketing and advertising skills as well as the ability to bring in the public to make it profitable. Well, he had a son, his only son, Howard Brennan Johnson. And this was a young man who, unlike his father, who had dropped out of school in the eighth grade, was educated at Moses Brown, Milton Academy, Phillips Andover, Yale, and the Harvard Business School. He was prepared to take over the business of, you know, Howard Johnson's. And he did. He worked for two years before he became a senior vice president. (laughs) And after his father retired in 1959, became president of the company. It only took the son 10 years to destroy the company that his father had taken 40 years to build it. And with his business acumen and his business background, one would have thought he would have parlayed all of that into something that could have been adapted to the 1960s and 1970s America. And what he did was he did start a new restaurant called The Ground Round, and The Ground Round survived right up until the time of the 1990s. He also bought out the Red Coach Grills, which actually used a red roof and a stagecoach as their um, motif. But rather than compete against them, he bought them out. And he also bought a place called Mug and Muffin, which was a well-known coffee shop throughout the Boston area. Each of these former competitors had been bought out with cash. So now the cash was not being reinvested in the business. And to cut costs, he began to actually lessen the production of food. And in some ways, the food suffered. And being frozen, it did not have quite the cachet by the mid-1960s that it might have had previously. And during that period of time, he was also somebody who had close to 20 vice presidents. And his father, who was chairman of the board, was really ill-equipped to deal with this. So the son basically realized in some ways that with the rise in competitors, like I had said earlier, Burger King, McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, these fast food places where you simply could go to the counter and it was served to you and much less expensive, it became something that he realized he did not want to actually compete against. He was also spending money foolishly. And in the period of the 1960s, he wanted to upgrade the waitress uniforms. Now, the waitresses had always used a teal-type colored uniform. It was something that everyone wore. But when he decided to redesign it, he didn't go to a local dressmaker. He went to Dior in Paris. And he had a competition that four designs would actually be chosen. And the waitresses at the Howard Johnson's restaurants throughout the United States would vote upon which one they wished to wear. 
Well, I don't think it went over big. And these women who basically probably would have appreciated a 50 cent an hour raise were now voting on a haute couture that they're going to wear to serve to the clients at Howard Johnson's. These are the types of things that many people realize that Howard Brennan Johnson was doing. And whereas his father, who was a down-to-earth, maybe megalomania, a man who was somebody who was driven, the son himself basically looked at this as something he had never worked for. And the unfortunate thing was when the company was eventually sold in 1979 for $135 million, which was down from 1959 at $750 million, it was at that point the company was broken apart. He did sell it to a British conglomerate, Imperial Group. And Imperial Group broke apart the restaurants and the motels. Now, the thing about the restaurants was a third of them were owned by the Johnson family outright. The other two-thirds were legal franchises. And as a legal franchise, they had the right to run it under the name of Howard Johnson, but they couldn't sell it. So what they decided to do was to allow the franchises to actually eventually expire. And as they expire, they'd not be reopened. But the motels were sold outright to Marriott Corporation. And Marriott took these restaurant, these motels, put the name Marriott on them. Of course, they were really quite good. And we realized it wasn't so much the building that was of value, but it was the land. And throughout the period of the 1980s and 90s, Marriott reconditioned and repurposed these buildings into something that became really very comfortable for the traveling middle class. So Howard Johnson's had begun a slow decline in the 1960s. And by the early 1970s, people would equate it to where one's grandparents would usually have dinner. It was not hip. It was not cool. And the food was the same all the time. There was nothing special. So here was the perfect idea of Howard Brennan Johnson, which was to create the Grand Round. And the Grand Round, the one I remember here in Boston, which was at um, the Back Bay's Copley Square, was a place where they'd serve you a bowl of popcorn. Oh, great. And then you could actually have a hamburger and a beer. I mean, this was really incredible. It was a hip-type, groovy place. But it didn't survive. And during this period of time, having bought out competitors and spent capital you, you should never spend capital. Only a portion of the income should ever be reinvested. But the old problem was the company really did fail. And during that period, Howard Johnson's took on the connotation as an old-fashioned, never-changing place that though the ice cream was delicious, it was also something that many people really began to think twice about. So by 1979, when it was sold, it had dropped by close to 40 to 45% of its average annual sales. Oh, man, that's, I mean, so it's impossible to tell, of course, or pos- impossible to know. But I guess uh, anecdotally, do you think maybe if the his son, Howard Brennan Johnson, had um, 
maybe instead of gone, you know, to all these business schools and everything, if he had just worked closely with his dad, kind of under his supervision and, and learned that way, do you think perhaps that uh, the business could have survived? Well, it's always a possibility. But one of the concepts in some ways was what parent does not want a better life for his or her son or daughter? And the idea was he provided the best education imaginable, even for his daughter, Dorothy. And she had gone uh, to Dana Hall, which is a boarding school here in the Boston area, and eventually to Briarcliff Manor, which uh, is a very well-known junior college in New York. But in some ways, what he was doing was giving love through education. But I think if he had actually had the children working in the business and they saw the business as something that was not just a family business, but was also something that it takes work, it takes time. And of course, success is not always guaranteed. It might have made a difference. But if my son and I could afford it, which I cannot, had gone to these various schools, it would be something in some ways that I would assume he would be able to not only continue my vision, but he would continue that vision and grow upon it. But what unfortunately happened was the young man, you know, moved headquarters from Wollaston in Quincy, Massachusetts, to the Rockefeller Center in New York and had a magnificent office, but you had to realize that his father had a small office in Quincy, and there he basically ran this empire, but now his son was spending huge amounts of money renting probably the most sophisticated um, office space that had been recently developed in the 1960s by the Rockefeller family. And this was what had happened. He spent money indiscriminately. The waitress's uniform situation is a great example. But he was somebody in some ways that, you know, had a totally different interpretation of the business than his father did. And I think that was really the major reason the company was no longer successful. Mm-hmm. Man, what a story. I feel like this should be made into a movie by now. It's, it's, it's it wouldn't be far-fetched. I think in a lot of ways you'd see two men, both related, who basically had different visions. And it is something in a lot of ways that's not unique to Howard Johnson's, but it is something in some ways that maybe, as you suggest, if it would have been different, could have survived to this very day. And there are restaurants that have survived. But I think one has to realize that in some ways, food, ice cream, they are, they're, they're incredible. But it's also something you have to look at the public and what the public wants and how you adapt to that is possibly the fodder for your success. Mm-hmm. Did uh, you know it, it, when I was kind of doing research for this and looking up some stuff? I saw that uh, some headlines saying that there's one Howard Johnson's left somewhere in New York. Do you know if that's right? Well, it was in uh, Lake George, New York. It did close a couple of years ago. The only mm-hmm. one now is in Bangor, Maine. Oh, and wow. again, it's a franchise, <laughs> it's still surviving. But the idea is um, 
I don't think they have 28 flavors. I've not had dinner there, but I think they offer something like 13 or 14 flavors, which mm. is more than enough for me. But sure. in some ways, you know, over the last decade or so, it's gone from maybe a dozen down to one. But you can't get the sense of what it represented 30 years ago. It was such an important feature that maybe it was taken for granted by the American public. The traveling public knew, I mean, the moment they got there, dinner was going to be great and it wasn't going to break the father's bank account. But it was also the fact in some ways, whether you were simply having something, a quick bite to eat before a baseball game or a basketball game, or maybe you were simply going out on a Friday night as your date night with your husband or your wife, everything was pretty good. And, you know, they had a liquor license and they did have specials on occasion. So I think it was something that was a standby, a reliable standby, and people did love it. The unfortunate thing was it really did in the 1960s decline. So when you had other restaurants actually vying for competition, and you can actually include places like Friendly's restaurants, you began to see in some ways it was of the same ilk. They were still serving the same types of food, but on a little bit of a different basis. And Howard Johnson's, as I said, rather than compete against the Red Coach Grill and rather than compete against Mug and Muffin, bought them out. And here was the ground round, which was supposed to be their foray into the hip culture of the late 1960s. It really didn't prove a success. Yeah. Man, well, Anthony, this was great. Thanks for sharing the whole story. I, I love it so much. Um, how about we let's tell people about your book, uh, where they can great. get your book, anything else about you that you want to share and, and send people to tell us. Well, thank you. Well, for many years, um, I've had a financial career and I've also taught at both the Boston University Metropolitan College and the Urban College of Boston. I strive to make local history interesting and fun. And I've done over 80 books over the last 25 years. And they go the gamut of not just the history of Boston and its neighborhoods, but I've also done books such as this, the history of Howard Johnson's, the history of the Baker Chocolate Company, um, the history of Jordan Marsh, which was the largest department store in New England. And currently I'm writing a book on um, S.S. Pierce, which was a gourmet food um, company in Boston. But I've also begun doing new books, which are called Traditions in Boston. So in the past year or two, I've completed five of them. So I've done Christmas Traditions in Boston, Thanksgiving Traditions in Boston, Easter Traditions in Boston, and next February of 2022, Valentine's Day Traditions in Boston. I just started Halloween traditions this week, so um, I'm a little bit spooky, but great pictures. <laughs> but I think in a lot of ways, history is something that I always tell people should be fun, whether it's a student or something that I'm lecturing to. Great pictures, a good story, enough that tantalizes the public, because I realize that 75% of the general public is really not interested in history. And what you have to do is make it interesting and appealing to the person who is reading it. So in my estimation, maybe I'm doing what Howard Johnson did in the 1920s and 1930s. 
He made a restaurant that appealed to people, not only for the food served and the ice cream, finding something for every palate of 28 flavors, but you make history into something that not only preserves it for the future, but also in this way creates a sense for those of us that do remember and those of us that have children like yourself and grandchildren, that they too will understand sometimes what we knew through our parents and grandparents. Mm-hmm. History is fun. I write it. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Yeah, I love it. That's you know that's how I was able to to get exposed to this story and, and learn the whole thing. So that that's great. Um, is there? Do you have a website or anything like that where we should send people to? Well, go to um, Facebook. I don't have a website, but I go to Facebook. It's my name, Anthony Samarco, and I have one major Facebook page called Lost Boston. It's got 20,000 people on it, and it is something that every day I post something about Boston history that is interesting but does not exist any longer. So in that instance, what I do is sometimes on Howard Johnson's, but it's also on all aspects of the city, whether it's ethnic, racial, religious, or architecture. Each one of them actually is treated equally in this on a daily basis. Very cool. I love that. Well, for people listening, I'll have uh, I'll have links to that stuff for them to check out and and click on and get to easily. And uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks again, Anthony. This was great. Super fun. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. And it's over. Episode 109 has come and gone. Thank you to Anthony again for coming on and sharing that fun story. Uh, Thank you to you, the listener, for being here to the end and listening to my voice right now. Uh, Appreciate it. Maybe you know someone who is above the age of, let's say, 45, 50-ish, over the hill, as they say, who might enjoy this episode, who remembers a Howard Johnson's, a a Hojo's, as I've heard they've been called. Uh, Maybe send this episode off to them. They might enjoy hearing about the history of Howard Johnson's and and reminiscing a bit. Um, Always love when people are able to share this episode with other folks around them. The word of mouth is extremely helpful, and I hope it's helpful and appreciated by the person who is receiving this, the word of mouth. But uh, yep, that's it. The episode's done. I'm Travis DeRose. Uh, you can find me on uh, Instagram at Trav DeRose. Uh, send me an email, Travis at uh, curiosityness.com. And uh, let me know your thoughts, questions, ideas for new episodes. I love that stuff. Uh, or just connect and say hello. That's fun too. I like that. I really appreciate that stuff. Um, that's all I got to say. Thanks for being here. Episode 109 is done. Oh, hey, and one more thing. So, after I recorded this episode with Anthony, I got uh, pretty excited about Howard Johnson's and uh, did some searching, looking up stuff, and actually found a, uh, a band, like an old Howard Johnson's uh, in the area and around me in Baldwin Park, California. So, went to visit that thing. It was awesome. Uh, it's, it, it was a hotel. There was a restaurant there. The restaurant had been demolished. Um, the hotel's basically abandoned. It hasn't been in operation since 2017, but... Uh, it was awesome. It had the bright orange roof. It was more ready, but more of a red, but uh, it was there. It had the huge roof, the A-frame, and it had the uh, weather vane with the Simple Simon and the Pyman logo on it. It was pretty cool to visit. So I made a YouTube video about visiting that. Um, this this location was actually used. They revamped it up and painted it and stuff for an episode of Mad Men, too. So uh, it's kind of cool. It was, in, it was in an episode of Mad Men, but uh, 
That was exciting to visit. It was super fun. So just wanted to throw that in at the end of this episode too. Um, if you want to check out that video, that's on my YouTube page. Uh, at, I'm on Curiosityness on YouTube. You could just search that, or uh, I'll put a link to the to the video in the description of the podcast too. If you want to check that out, I just go there and tour it a little bit and show you the outside and all that kind of stuff. So it's pretty fun. Uh, okay, that's it. Now goodbye for real.